0: Welcome to The Artisan CEO, where the art of photography meets the business of profits. This is where strategy and craftsmanship coexist so that you can run a creative business that supports a life you love. I'm your host, Abby Grace, and I promise to give it to you straight. It was my second or third year as a wedding photographer, and I had heard all of my favorite leaders talk about pre wedding gifts the client experience it was a really buzzy topic like there was always someone at conferences talking about the client experience and gifts was something that people were talking about a lot and one of matt and i's favorite date nights is going to the movies so i thought i know i'll send a movie night gift i was trying to figure out what gift i wanted to send my clients roughly a month before their wedding like right around the time their final payment was due and i was like a date night gift that'll be perfect we love that Well, the problem was I could never seem to decide on what to include. Like, movie theater candy was a given, but it was always different when it ended up being included in the box. Like, we were purchasing and packaging everything ourselves, which meant that I had to go out and buy new candy for each gift because I have a huge sweet tooth and I can't buy 10 boxes of Milk Duds and then send out 10 boxes of Milk Duds over the next couple of months. Like, I would maybe get one or two in the mail and then the rest... Would be consumed by yours truly. I love sugar. (laughs) So I had to go out and buy the candy one box at a time. And then I also had to buy the movie. So this was 2012 ish. So I was sending DVDs and it kind of depended on what movies were currently at Target, you know. And I wanted to send like a classic movie, not necessarily something super recent. Because what if it wasn't their taste? So like trying to decide you know, which classic movie are we going to send and which classic movie do they happen to have in stock? Because I could never find enough in stock that I could buy them in bulk. I know that I could have sent an iTunes gift card. Some of you are rolling your eyes at me, but that was complicated in its own way. Like, what if they didn't have an Apple TV? What if they had a PC and not an iPhone? So we went with the like DVD route, right? So then I also had to decide on which movie, which candy, what the note was going to include because I wrote a different note every time and then what day that it was going to be sent because that's another thing I had to remember to do it I didn't have anything in my schedule that reminded me to send these it was up to me to remember like oh hey look it looks like their final invoice has been paid okay now it's time to send the date night gift crap I gotta go out and shop for these things and when am I gonna have time to do that and then I have to have time to package them blah 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 I'm sure that you're not going to be surprised that I eventually stopped sending these gifts. It became too many decisions to make and I eventually ran out of enthusiasm, right? Ran out of energy. In his book, Deep Work, author Cal Newport talks about the concept of willpower and how we have finite amounts of it that become depleted throughout the day. That same principle applies with making decisions. The more decisions you ask me to make about a project, the less energy that I have. So if I'm gonna be making decisions, I would like for that energy to be saved for decisions that make an impact. Deciding on whether to send Milk Duds or Rainbow Nerds, that is not a big impact decision. Neither is the question of whether to send the Princess Bride or Top Gun. Princess Bride, 10 times out of 10 if it's available. (laughs) Those are low impact decisions. And even further than that, those are decisions that do not need to be made more than once. As a business owner, you will inevitably have a lot of decisions to make. So it's important that you prioritize your energy for the decisions that carry weight. Decisions like editing, designing your new about page, maybe figuring out a new pricing structure that's going to maximize your profits. Any kind of repeatable process, that is not where your decision-making energy should go to die. SOPs, or Standard Operating Procedures, Those involve making decisions ahead of time about how things should unfold and then documenting the process and then making sure the process unfolds the same way every time so that you're not having to exert new energy to make the same decisions over and over again. SOPs are essential for growing your business. This is the opposite of running your business by the seat of your pants. I've wrestled with this a lot over the years. I'm a control freak, and I I don't know if you guys have picked up on that, but I'm a control freak, and I have maintained a custom touch on processes that should be standard operating procedures. We hired our VA last year, and we love her, and working with Sabrina has taught me a lot about how much custom attention I was giving to projects or tasks that she should have been able to handle without me typing up a new email for them. So prior to hiring Sabrina, I was asked to create a Google Doc of email templates for her to use for our standard emails. Easy peasy. I eat email templates for lunch. We have email templates for sale in our shop. That was actually the first online product I ever sold outside of our courses and I'm freaking good at them. So this should not have been a problem. (laughs) And yet... For the first few months of working together, I would insist on writing customized emails myself, even though I had already written a template for it. This was so silly. This is what we were paying our VA to do. I wasn't just paying her for reminders that that was an email waiting for me for a response. It was literally her job to write the response. And yet I was still insisting on doing things myself. I was putting a custom touch on something that did not need a custom touch. What I'm trying to illustrate here is that if you're a control freak, so am I. And I think that that comes naturally for heart-centered business owners, people who began their business out of a love for their craft, and especially artists when our craft feels so tied to who we are. It feels so personal. Our church used to be a pop-up church before we found the permanent building that we're in now. We met in the cafeteria of an elementary school for the first eight years that Matt and I were part of the church now that I think about it and every Sunday we had to wheel out these racks of folding metal chairs and before we could do that we had to you know the cafeteria tables in elementary schools that fold up in the middle with the like little seats attached we had to run tables from the cafeteria and I'm talking like 24 tables from the cafeteria into the gym and then roll out the racks of folding metal chairs and place those into a row it was my least favorite part of being a pop-up church but anyway there was a middle section that we had and then there was an angled section on either side of that with an aisle between you know the three sections one of the things that i love about our pastor his name's matt so things you know can get a little confusing in our house sometimes because my husband's name is matt but one of the things i love about our pastor is his commitment to excellence And there was a very specific way that the chairs needed to be set up in order to make sure that we had enough room for the three sections and the exact number of chairs per row and then the correct number of rows per section. But the problem was there were only a few people who knew exactly where to start the first row and exactly where the two side sections were supposed to be positioned and what angle they were supposed to be positioned at. And so the setup team would often end up asking Pastor Matt how to do it. A leader of a church, they have a lot of responsibilities when it comes to shepherding their people. And chair placement is not one of those only the pastor can do this kind of tasks. But that chair placement did matter. That's not to to make it a small thing or a negligible thing because making sure the setup was consistent from week to week was important. So it mattered, but it wasn't a task that needed our pastor's input more than the time that it took to put that process down on paper. A couple years later, my Matt was setting up chairs and wasn't quite sure where that first chair in the middle of the first row should go. And he asked our pastor, hey, is this the right setup? And Pastor Matt was like... I don't know. I don't handle that anymore. And my Matt and I were like, yes, attaboy. Our pastor had finally handed off that responsibility to someone else because it wasn't the kind of task that had a big impact in the grand scope of what our pastor does for the church. His energy is better put towards writing his next sermon or team development, counseling members of the church, that kind of thing. Real quick, photographers, are you tired of lather, rinse, and repeating the same tired collection of forgettable photos from one brand session to the next? If you're ready to turn yawn-worthy galleries into the sort of results that thrill your clients and get you both noticed, then you're definitely gonna wanna join me for my free training, The Backstage Secret to Scroll Stopping Brand Photography. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or you're just getting started out in the world of branding, this session is for you. I'll teach you my number one strategy for crafting stories that resonate with your clients and their audience, which is the biggest secret behind creating galleries that not only look stunning, but also drive engagement and sales for your clients, which spoiler alert, is what keeps them coming back for additional sessions in the future. Because as brand photographers, purposeful matters more than pretty. But who says you can't have both? Our job is to think like a marketer and shoot like an artist. But you have to have both pieces of that equation. And learning to approach with the mindset of a strategist, that changes everything. So if you're raring to say goodbye to cliche galleries that simply repeat what's already clogging your Pinterest and social media, and hello to a method that drives brand loyalty and real bottom line growth, then head on over to abbygrace.co slash training. That's abbygrace.co slash training. It's time to leave those forgettable, smiling at a laptop photos in the dust in favor of a more tailored approach that's gonna leave your clients obsessed and already planning for their next shoot with you. One more time, that's abbygrace.co slash training. I'll see you in class. Michael Hyatt talks about how for any business owner, there are really only two to three only me tasks, things that only the business owner can do. Everything else can hypothetically be either automated or given to somebody else to handle. So for our business, my two to three only me tasks are, it's actually three, it's not two to three, it's just three. (laughs) Mine are shooting brand sessions and the research that comes along with that, so like prepping for the brand session, teaching and writing new content, so podcast episodes, blog posts, Instagram captions, that kind of thing. All the other stuff can be done by other people, even if my control-loving self wants to beg otherwise. It didn't take very many years of being in business for me to realize that I needed help, but when I first started feeling the pinch, I couldn't afford to hire on help. But the problem wasn't that I had too many tasks on my plate. Granted, I was doing everything. I was a solopreneur, so that's not to say I wasn't busy and was wearing all the hats, but... The problem was that I was putting new energy into solving the same problems over and over again. If I had just automated my process, I would have been able to devote better energy to my only me tasks. I am a big advocate of outsourcing. After the shininess wore off of being self-employed and being a solopreneur, I realized there were tasks inside my business that I hated doing and I didn't want to do them. But the means to outsource it wasn't there right away. And part of the reason that I hated some of the routine tasks in my business, the reason that they drained me, was because I had to figure out and make decisions about how to proceed. There was every time that I needed to do these tasks, there was no plan, which made it really easy to procrastinate. So for example, every time I went to meet with my CPA to file my taxes, I had to drag all of my receipts, and I'm talking paper receipts, out from the year prior and organize those. There wasn't like a predetermined filing system other than the big folder in my filing cabinet that held all my receipts. There was no system for how and when I would prepare for my meeting with my CPA. Something as routine as sending a date night gift, which I did 15 to 20 times per year, That was requiring new decisions every time. What candy are we going to send? What movie are we going to send? What's the wording on the card going to be? New decisions every time, even though it was the same dang result. That process did not need to require new energy if I would just sit down and make a decision for how the task should unfold moving forward. Something as simple as keeping a mock-up card in my files of like, here is roughly what the card should say, there's no need to reinvent the wheel every time, that would have shaved a lot of time off my process. How many of you guys do this with emails, right? You write the same emails over and over again when you could actually be utilizing email templates, or you try to reinvent the wheel with your client workflow for every new client, which has the potential to derail your timeline and put you behind on your deadlines. You have to learn to recognize where a custom touch is actually warranted, versus where your business sees a bigger ROI from a consistent, predictable process. Our clients deserve our best energy where it matters most, and I never wanna automate a process that truly needs custom attention. But you've gotta know the difference between the two, between a process that requires new energy to make a new decision, or a decision that ends the same way over and over and could benefit from an SOP to take out the necessity of making a choice and instead just requires that you follow rote directions. These are the six most impactful SOPs that we have in our business. First is overall project workflow. So this is so I never have to rack my brain to figure out what comes next it took me a little while to get this nailed down but over the last two to three years my process for each brand client has changed very little why because I found a system that works. There is no need to make new decisions about what happens when the contract is signed because my assistant has it set up in HoneyBook to automatically deliver our client welcome guide as soon as the contract has been signed and the retainer's been paid. I don't need to make a decision about when to schedule the pre-shoot strategy call. That's already been decided. We have the pre-shoot strategy call one month before the shoot. There's a scheduling link actually included in the email that we send over along with the link to their pre-shoot questionnaire. How long is it going to take me to deliver a gallery? Three weeks. It's my standard turnaround time for every client. I don't have to look at my calendar and, you know, forward count by three weeks to see can I actually make that deadline work. No, it's just three weeks. I tell my clients that on the sales call, they know they can expect their gallery three weeks. I actually include a gallery delivery date in the email that I send with the link to their previews. Here's what that workflow SOP does for me. It eliminates the need to make decisions, which is crucial during my busy season. If we're in launch mode for Brand Photography Academy and I have a client shoot coming up, I don't have to agonize over whether or not I have time for a pre-shoot strategy call. It's just going to happen one month before the shoot. That's the SOP. So now I don't have to worry about whether or not I have time for that or I don't even have to look at my calendar to decide whether or not I want to. I will have time for it because it's part of my process. SOP number two the sales process. What does it take to get people in the door and convince them to work with you? So In order for a client to book a consult, they have to go through the contact form on our website. If we get a direct email from someone who I've never worked with before, I'm not already familiar with them and know that they would be a good fit, we have Sabrina, our assistant, sends an email. She's got a template for it that says, hey, we're so excited to hear that you're interested in brand photography. Can we have you go ahead and fill out the contact form on the website? This just gives us a little bit more background information to go off of before we check Abby's availability assuming it's a good fit, and by that I mean I specialize in serving high-performing creative small business owners. Every once in a while we'll get an inquiry for folks who are outside of that category, maybe like a therapist or a financial advisor for corporate companies, that kind of thing. I feel like creative small business owner, it's a pretty broad term, but if the inquiry doesn't jive with what my zone of genius is, then we love referring those out to my BPA students. So Typically what happens is when either an inquiry comes in or in a direct email, my VA sends me a Vox with a screenshot of the inquiry and I give her a yay or a nay. If it's a yay, then she sends them the templated email with a Calendly link to go ahead and schedule the consult. If it's a nay, then she sends that email template that says, hey, Abby's zone of genius is creative small business owners think like designers, authors. So we think you would be better served by, you know, by this specific photographer. And we try to refer somebody who does have experience in their niche. That's getting in the weeds there. So on the Calendly link that Sabrina sends over, there are a few more questions for that client to answer to help me do a bit of my pre-call research. So I do my pre-call research based on those answers from the initial contact form and the Calendly form. And then once we get on the sales call, I have what I call the consult roadmap. This is gold. I use this on every single sales call. I have a 90% close rate on sales calls. This Our BPA students get access to this and it works for them too. It is a step-by-step guide of what to ask on the sales call to gather the pertinent details of the brand, try to figure out what they're accomplishing with their brand photos, um, figure out is this part of like a like a rebrand or a website relaunch? Basically, what are we shooting for? What are your goals and how can I help support them? And then I walk them through, here's my proven process, here's my pricing. And so we have a, a very structured format for that. I don't have to get on a sales call and wonder. What are we going to talk about? What questions do I ask them? Have I covered all my bases? Do I sound like an idiot? No, because I've vetted this process a 100 times over, and I know that I have a 90% close rate, so I'm not worried about whether or not the client's going to book me. It's more of a matter of when can we fit your shoot in. So the sales process is SOP number two. SOP number three is getting paid. How does your business get paid? This should be rote memory for you. If not wrote memory for you, wrote memory for Google Docs where you house this process. Do not make it hard for people to pay you. Matt always says the less friction between you and getting paid by a client, the more likely they are to book. We don't want to give them so many hoops to jump through. We want to make it super easy, right? Okay, so what happens after that consult is that I send an email template that follows up on the call and reminds them here's the date that we're looking at. So in order to get your date on the calendar, we have to have the contract signed and the retainer paid, I need these specific pieces of information from you in order to get the contract filled out. I CC Sabrina who puts the contract together, sends it over to the client. So the payment is attached to the contract. Once they sign the contract, they're automatically booted to the payment window. So they don't have to click a separate field or a separate link or anything like that. And then once the retainer is paid, then we have HoneyBook send over that client welcome guide. What happens when the client doesn't sign though? What happens when you send the contract and three days go by and you haven't heard anything and you can tell that they've seen the contract because HoneyBook tells you that it's been viewed. We have another SOP for that, so okay, They have a 72-hour soft hold on that date. On day three, we send another email reminding them. And then if three more days, I think it's actually two more days go by and we still haven't heard from them, we send one final reminder letting them know they'll need to sign by midnight or else the contract's gonna be canceled this SOP, as simple as it is, eliminates the awkward decision of when do I follow up? Like, well, it's been three days. Is, Is that too soon? Is that, should I give them longer? No, it's been three days. You can send them an email because maybe they forgot. Like maybe they just got really busy and they have every intention of signing, but they just forgot. I have found most of the time, if someone has requested that you send them a contract or a proposal, they're pretty committed. Like, not signing the contract, something strange or like out of the ordinary had to happen. Either they changed their mind because maybe their financial situation changed, or they had a change in their cap like It's okay for you to follow up. You're not bothering them. If someone has asked you to send them a contract, they've gone through the trouble of having a sales call with you, they want to be served by you. So it is an act of service for you to follow up with them. So the SOP eliminates the awkward decision that you have to make every time someone doesn't sign a contract of when do I follow up. The worst thing that you can do is not follow up. If you've sent a contract and they haven't signed it, you should follow up twice. I think ours is twice. It might be three times. I think it's twice. So I'd have to to check my SOP because we do have it written down somewhere. The next SOP is keeping track of tasks. So if your current system of keeping track of tasks, like you got an email from someone that's like, hey, can you give me access to that gallery? If your way of keeping track of that is post-it notes or like whatever journal you're crushing on in the moment, maybe the notes app in your phone, That is a really, and I'm speaking from experience here, that's a really good way to lose track and forget to send that photo that you promised to a vendor or to reschedule your appointment with your CPA because you forgot you have a dentist appointment. Post-it notes and journals are not an effective way of keeping track of tasks unless you have one journal that you use over and over and over again. And there's some kind of index there that allows you to keep track of like your weekly tasks and your quarterly tasks too. Task management... Not a sexy topic. I recognize that. Neither is SOPs in general. But the more that I grit my teeth and get on with Trello boards, the easier I find it to organize my brain when I feel like I have a million things clamoring for my attention. And let's be honest, as small business owners, you do have a million things clamoring for your attention. So the more organized you can keep those tasks, the better you'll be able to see what should take priority when you only have you know, three hours to give on any given day. Matt and I have a team meeting every Monday, cleverly named Monday Meetings, and this is where we review our calendar for the week. Then after reviewing the calendar, we check on last week's task. Where are we at with them? Did you finish them? Did you not? Do they need to be, you know, transferred to this week's to-do list? And then we set a set of tasks for the coming week. Each task is then placed on a card inside the task management program Trello so that I can reference what's still on my plate for the week. Maybe I find myself, I've got an hour and a half left in my workday and I've done the 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 one thing that should have gotten done that day. Like, okay, it's kind of dealer's choice at this point. What do I want to work on? Pull open my Trello board and figure out what's left on my to-do list for the week. That way, whether I'm at home and I have my planner with me or I'm out working from a coffee shop, it's online and I can still access it. I am a paper and pen kind of girl. It took, Matt is still working on me to use Trello more frequently. Like I just prefer analog tools, but Trello is super, super helpful because everything is in one location and I can access it no matter where I go. I have cards for every task. And then I also like to keep a card for blog post topics. It's just a running list and also one for newsletter ideas so that I always have something to pull from if I'm ever drawing a blank. We have a card for each project or each brand client, and that tracks where they are within the workflow in case Matt or I ever need to check in to see if something was sent. Essential SOP number five is the yearly planning workflow. And I will be honest with you, we take this, we take our cues straight from the book Traction. If you've never read Traction, I'm not going to lie to you, it's not like a super engaging book, but this was a game changer for Matt and I in learning how to run our business like CEOs, like business owners, not just artists who happen to get paid for what we do. So we have a big meeting every December, and then we also have another one every quarter. So the purpose for that meeting is to project for the year ahead or the quarter ahead. And then we have an order for the meeting itself. We always begin with scripture, then we pray together, and then we review last year's goals to see where we landed. And reviewing last year's goals, that's more about dissecting why we did or didn't hit them, not just to like pat ourselves on the back. And then using that information on why we did or didn't hit the goal to inform the following year's goals. So after reviewing the past 12 months of goals and, you know, how do we do and why did we either hit it or why didn't we, we then set goals for the following year in order to track with the five-year plan. I think it's the five-year vision that they talk about in Traction. Trust me, I I can't do it justice here, nor should I. I mean, it's copyrighted material, so just go read Traction. (laughs) But there's the five-year vision and then I think it's the three-year picture And then there's the one-year plan. So we review the five-year vision and we set a new three-year picture and then we set out outlining the one-year plan because the one-year plan is meant to keep you on track for the three-year picture. And that three-year picture is meant to keep you on track for that five-year vision. So we set goals for the following year and then we also set goals, and I'm talking, this is the big meeting in December. We also set goals for Q1 of the following year so we can hit the ground running come January 1st. The next thing that we do after setting those goals is we walk through the calendar for the next year and we map out where all the big stuff is going to be. So like launch periods, because those take up a significant amount of space on our calendar because it's not just the actual launch week, it's pre-launch content and making sure that we have added any new material to our courses that may have needed to be added between launches. We also block out any big dates that are already on the calendar, client shoots, vacations, holidays, personal days like birthdays, anniversaries, that kind of thing. We also have an SOP for quarterly meetings, but I'm going to be honest with you, that got shot to heck this year after our second son was born in May. Um, We didn't even have a Q3 meeting because we had our heads down just trying to survive. And you know what, now that I think – I don't think we had a Q2 meeting either because without getting too in the weeds about our story, we had an adoption fall through that – sort of spanned the gap between March and April and so our Q2 meeting that would have taken place in early April it felt like there was no point to have that meeting because we were expecting to have a baby which was going to alter all of our plans anyway and then that didn't happen and then Teddy was born in early May and so our Q3 meeting didn't happen either. We had our heads down just trying to survive and I have definitely felt the pain from it. I am really, really excited to get back on track next quarter. So if you're listening to this thinking Abby has all of her stuff together, I have a lot of my stuff together, but like things fall through the cracks with us too. Like big upheavals happen to us too and we're running a small business and trying to handle big personal upheavals alongside a small business is hard. Being an experienced business owner has seen a lot of success in my field, that does not make me impervious To those same kind of struggles so you're in good company okay and real quick here's something else to point out part of our yearly meeting involves a huge wall size yearly calendar and we outline all of those quarterly and yearly meetings the december before they happen so when we meet in december of 2022 we will have a wall calendar printout for all of 2023. And so we put it on the calendar when the quarterly meeting is going to happen for Q2, Q3, Q4. And then next year, so 2024's yearly meeting, we put that on the calendar a year beforehand so that I never have to scramble to try and fit in a, you know, couple hours long meeting when we're in the thick of busy periods. Like you get to July 3rd and you're like, oh my gosh, we haven't had our Q3 meeting. But like you're slammed over the next couple of weeks and you don't have any childcare for your infants. You can really only work in 1.5 hour blocks, which is not enough time to get coffee, sit down and collect your thoughts, read scripture and pray together and then review your yearly goals and then last quarter's performance and then work through any issues that you might be experiencing that prevented you from meeting your last quarter's goals and then talk through your P&L statement and then set new goals for the coming 90 days all while praying that your sweet little baby doesn't wake up early. True story, 2022, only it wasn't July 3rd. It was like August 14th, halfway through the quarter. Again, if you feel like the people who've been doing this for a long time have all of their stuff together, we're experiencing growing pains just like you. TLDR, have a plan and an agenda for how you're going to set goals for the following year, the following quarter, and then put it on the calendar. Sixth, finally you need an SOP for keeping track of finances. At the most elementary level this is going to mean a profit and loss spreadsheet. We review these once a month because I got tired of not knowing our profit margin until like the end of the year and just crossing my fingers and closing my eyes that whatever the final percentage Matt gave me wasn't too far outside of my expectations. A profit and loss statement. Please don't turn off this podcast episode. If you're a creative and you like your skin starts crawling at the number at like the mention of numbers, don't shut off this episode. Okay, this is good stuff. I'm going to make it real simple. So a profit and loss statement, at its most basic, is as simple as categorizing your expenses, categorizing your income. We do both of those with Wave Accounting, and then subtracting your expenses from your income, and that's your profit. Take it the next step. Your profit margin is just your income minus your expenses divided by your income times 100. So, for example, if you make $1,000 and you spent $700, you have a $300 profit. Divide that $300 by your income, which is $1,000. So, 300 divided by 1000 you get 0. 0.3. Multiply that by 100, it's 30%. So, your profit margin that month is 30%. Matt does all of this for us. The thought of looking, like making my own profit and loss statement, I wish you guys could see me. I'm like rolling my shoulders back and cracking my neck. Like, Look, I don't want to do that. But it is essential. It's a part of the business. It's got to get done. So Matt pulls those together for our Monday meetings once a month. And then we set a goal for overall profit margin every year. And the reason for looking at that on a yearly scale is because depending on whether or not we're in launch season or off season, our expenses and income are going to fluctuate a lot. So if we try to, like, let's say we look at a month where we've just had an open cart period of Brand Photography Academy, which means a huge influx of registrations and cash. If we look at that compared to our expenses, it's going to look like, oh my gosh, we can spend so much money. But if we look at our profit and loss statement, during one of our slower seasons, maybe the month before a launch, we're going to see a higher spend from Facebook ads, which might cause me to panic. Like, oh my gosh, why are your expenses so high? Chill. It's because we're going to have a big influx next month from those registrations that those Facebook ads are hopefully generating. So this is why we want to look at this on a yearly scale. Like you want to know your profit and loss from month to month, or at the very least quarter to quarter, but don't like you know, destroy, like burn everything down and like cut all of your expenses because you had one really expensive month. This is why it's important to track over time, okay? I hope that I haven't overwhelmed you here. I know that numbers can be really intimidating for us creatives. I'm still overwhelmed by numbers at times. Nothing gives me more anxiety in business than talking about money. I hate it. But I also know that if I bury my head in the sand, that doesn't help. And it likely just means that when I finally do pull my head out of the sand, I'm going to have less money than I thought and no one to blame and no one to rescue me. So I would rather keep informed even if it literally makes my palms sweat. Just ask Matt. It, it really does make my palms sweat. <laughs> Because if I'm keeping informed, then it means I can course correct along the way by reducing expenses or increasing ad spend or marketing efforts in order to bring in more revenue. And I can do that in little increments throughout the year instead of getting to December and being like, what happened? Somebody must have stolen my credit card. There's no way we spent that much. You know, you've done that, right? I've definitely done that. Next week's episode is going to be all about the numbers that you need to know within your business. And I... I'm telling you now, I don't want you to skip that episode. It is good to be informed, even if it's scary or intimidating. You are talking to the girl who literally did not file sales tax for the first several years of my business, knowing full well that I was going to have to pay a penalty, but I just I didn't want to look at the numbers, and I was afraid, and I was intimidated, and so I buried my head in the sand, and when I finally pulled up for air... There were several thousand dollars in back taxes waiting for me. It wasn't pretty. Matt was not happy with me. So like, I get it, okay? I truly, truly get it. But even telling you that I get it, I'm now telling you it is good to be informed even if it's scary or intimidating. This is part of putting your big kid pants on, realizing that you, you are actually really, really capable of solving problems and doing hard things and thinking in terms of profit margins and P&L statements, even if they make your palms sweat. I used to think that getting too regimented about my systems would stifle my creativity. That Somehow formalizing my client workflow would make me less artistic because artists are all about breaking the rules, not abiding by them, right? But in realizing just how much energy I was expending to remaking the same decisions over and over again, and then realizing how much better shape I'm in as an artist when my tank isn't running on empty, I've come to love structure and discipline. Discipline doesn't keep you caged it sets you free by giving you margin and energy for the tasks and the jobs in your business that only you can do. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, remember to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode and head over to abbygrace.co slash podcast for even more resources to help you blow your clients away at your very next brand shoot. I'm Abby Grace and I'll see you next time. Now, let's go get after it, shall we?